0: Welcome to Uplifting Humans, where we honor, empower, educate, and inspire the listener with real stories and expert advice. Our guest today is Luke Sellers. Luke was first introduced to meditation 14 years ago as a possible solution to his mental illness and addiction due to brain trauma from playing professional ice hockey. He has developed his approach to self-realization and self-mastery Through his experiences as an ice hockey player and dedicated practitioner of Kriya Yoga, heart meditation, mindfulness, and Tibetan heart imagery over the past 16 years. Welcome, Luke.
1: Thank you for having me, Sal. It's an honor for me to be here with you and really nice to reconnect
0: reconnect yes it's such a privilege such a privilege to bring luke because i think luke your story is an amazing amazing journey i i i bow to anybody who has been through what you've been through in life and so i'm i'm so glad that you are able to join us so uh let's start with your childhood luke can you share with the listeners what your childhood was like?
1: Definitely. I, growing up in Canada and being involved in hockey, it's, I think, a story that people know real well. Um, I'm really fortunate to, to grow up with a wonderful family, really, really beautiful parents. One of the, one of the most amazing memories I, I have from when I was really young is I used to ride up and down the street on a, one of those um, big wheels, you know, the three-wheelers. Oh, yes. in my in my diaper carry, holding the the plunger thinking I was some sort of knight in shining armor on a <laughs> on a on a horse uh, but my parents really good I mean they're still together to this day I was born in Scarborough and uh, they moved out to Pickering and you know childhood was interesting because back then uh, playing hockey at the AAA level they only had a t- league in Toronto so at, at uh, grade four. Um, there was a zoning issue, so I had to live within the 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 area of Toronto. So I moved in with my grandmother from grade four to six. So everything was really directed towards hockey. I was fortunate that my parents weren't ones that pushed me in the sport, mm-hmm. uh, like you see a lot of what's going on today. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was it was a pretty pretty normal childhood. Um, a lot of time spent at the rink, um, and really just growing up in a really really good environment. Um, and my parents really just just you know worked hard. My mom was a nurse and my dad had uh, an accountant and they really dedicated their lives to providing for their children and creating an environment a household where there was a lot of love and a lot of a lot of support and um, me and my sister Shannon really fortunate to have been raised in that way
0: isn't that beautiful so now you're living with grandma and how was that living with grandma was that uh your typical you know grandson grandmother relationship or anything that really stands out
1: well it it, my childhood looking back now is there's a lot of things that were kind of going on you know recently you've come to come to understand that I'm on the spectrum of Asperger's so there was a lot of things in in childhood there and, and not really fitting in so much and and you know also playing hockey at a high level you're you're not really around in the evenings you're practicing a lot so you don't have the ability to grow up as a normal kid, so to say, where you're hanging out with your friends from school after school and those sorts of things. And leaving um, my home school in Pickering after grade three and going to school in Scarborough at Centennial Road from grade four to six uh, created more separation. Now you're going into a school where you don't really know anybody and and, um, you're kind of uh, on the perimeter, so to say. Uh, You don't really have any real strong friendships within school because you're not spending much time outside of school with those kids because I was living in Pickering still. I mean I was spending time at my grandma's before and after school and on paper I lived with her so that I had an address there. Yes. Uh, but we had a we had a really good good relationship. My my grandmother was was a really beautiful woman, my dad's mother, and yeah. she had just recently moved back to Canada um, because she had been living in Bermuda with my, my grandfather, my dad's dad, who had passed away of a heart attack in his 50s. So mm. my grandma had brought herself back to, to Canada where she was closer to our family and that. And, and uh, I got to spend a lot of time with her, which was really I really value those times as a child because as I grew older into my teenage years and that and left home to play junior hockey and then professional hockey, her health took a downward spiral and she spent the last 10, 15 years of her life really not so with it because of some minor strokes and that. So the memories of, of spending time with her, I will never forget whenever I'd show up there in the morning, she'd always make me English muffins with peanut butter. <laughs> so I'd get, I'd get ai would get a second, second breakfast where my mom and my dad would drop me off at her home and we'd spend time together and, and then I'd walk to school and that. So, but it was, it was an interesting dynamic, um, being, being in a sport at a high level, I think childhood uh, for kids at that level is when the sport is the most fun. Mm-hmm. Um, however, there's a lot of things that we don't really get to experience and, and develop our own identities as just regular children, because there's so much time and emphasis uh, put on sport.
0: Yes, yes. And did you feel that, uh, I mean, obviously, when a child goes into any sport, it's for the love and the passion and the fun of the sport. At what point did you feel like the love and the passion or the fun of it was taken out? Because I think there's this uh there's there's a completely sh- there's a huge shift that takes place when the fun is not there anymore.
1: It's it's uh, a <laughs> my fondest memories of playing hockey were as a child and as a kid playing on outdoor rinks for eight, 10 hours a day. I mean it's you're you're you wouldn't even be able to feel your hands and your toes with your friends and you know, envisioning that you're scoring the winning goal in Game Seven of the Stanley Cup Playoffs, and I mean, that's the, my fondest memories of hockey, really. And and as and in organized hockey back when I was playing, you know, 30 years ago or so, it wasn't the same way it is today. I, I really, I really believe now it's it's almost inhumane the way that that um, childhood hockey and and that is and really hockey's happening in Canada because it's more of the adults living vicariously through these young children. So. You know, at, at the age of, I think it was about 15, the central scouting came out. So in hockey, they have this central scouting ratings. And this was for the OHL, the Canadian Hockey League. And I was playing um, um, junior hockey in Toronto. And I was ranked to be drafted in the first round. So that's when things kind of got real. Um, where now all of a sudden, you've got agents showing up at your hockey games. And now it's, you know, this could possibly become a business. For me, though, I was never in that state. And I don't think kids back then were so much had their heads up in the clouds of wanting to play in the NHL so much. I was fortunate to play for an organization, the Wexford Raiders, which we won a ton of championships. So I was still having fun being a kid, but the minute that it started to get real in the context that you could make money playing this game is when all the adults started showing up, swarming you agents wanting to take you to dinner, wanting to, you know, you're 16 years old. It's like, you don't know. I don't know anything about, I still don't know anything about life.
0: Yeah, back yeah. back
1: then, I was fortunate to have parents that were really balanced and really supportive of me. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's uh, it, it's not reality. It's it's a, it's a different sport. Is a completely different beast that we admire so much and look up to so much. Uh, but I think there's a I think there's a bit of a distortion there in what's really important uh, because mm-hmm. there isn't really a lot of humanness within sport. You're a number, and if you win, you're good, and if you lose, you're bad. So it's always trying to get somewhere. And then even when you get to that thing, you don't even celebrate a win because you got to get ready for the next game. So the right. season, that eight months, there's no real presence to the whole, you know, oh, you score a goal or that, maybe you have that kind of, you know, but it was, yeah, it, it was, it, it's looking back now, uh, a really amazing experience, but also a really difficult one, especially with a lot of the tendencies that this type of, of living conditioned into me later in life.
0: Yes, well, you know, as adults, we do have a real fine knack of uh, taking the fun out of things and commercializing and making sure that a child is no longer a child because we're gonna we're gonna make sure that we get every diamond nickel out of them. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. that is the way it is. So we're gonna we're gonna kind of um, fast forward a, just a little bit. So now you're a teenager, and obviously you were going to school. How was, the, how was your school life? You know, there's a <laughs> lot of parents out there and they're thinking they're doing the right thing. How was your school life?
1: Uh, school for me was difficult. Again, if we we go back to, you know, early in school, I didn't develop those real deep bonds and friendships. Uh, most of those deep bonds and friendships were the guys I was playing hockey with who all who, kids who all played, lived in Toronto and I was living in Pickering. so, Mm-hmm. High school was a difficult start for me. Um, I was bullied really heavily in my ninth, my ninth year of high school, and I was a really good hockey player, which kind of added to it, but I, I was was a little bit on the smaller side at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, my parents, huge advocates of school. Uh, then I was drafted to the OHL to Ottawa, 19th overall, and, and left my home after grade 10 and uh, didn't go to school anymore. <laughs> Uh, where where I played where I played junior hockey it was if you could walk you played and if you won you drank and uh, they didn't our head coach it's such a long standing tradition in that uh, the culture of that team and you really didn't have to go to school I mean I remember at the end of my junior career at the age of twenty I think I had sixteen credits and you needed third no twenty credits and you needed thirty to pass and our general manager called the guidance counselor at the high school. And said, this kid needs a diploma. And I had one within a couple weeks in the mail. So as a junior hockey player, school was more about going there to, you know, hang out with girls. And, you know, just really, we, it just it just wasn't a good lifestyle. It was, you know, my parents are at home thinking I'm going to school on a regular basis. And there I am in an environment in Ottawa where we had a lot of notoriety. So you're a young man with with um, abilities and, and uh, privileges that, nobody at the age of 17 or 18 should have so it was it it was it was the foundation that was laid for a lot of difficult experiences later in life but also a beautiful beautiful time for me because i won a championship there Uh, again very competitive in the nature of, of growing up in sport but school was kind of obsolete i wasn't interested in it i didn't enjoy it i i don't think i even had really even written an essay in my life. I mean, if you asked me to do long division today, I'd have to look up how to do it. And, and I didn't pick my first book up and really read it until I was about 26 or so, 25, 26. I just kind of skimmed by in school to the best of my ability. I mean, I remember when I, when I first went to high school in grade nine, I had a friend of mine who, who wrote, had really beautiful handwriting, like a woman's. And at the start of the year, I had him write me about thirty letters, as though he was my mom. So I would use those letters to be able to skip out of class until I got caught one day, taking the the GO train down to Toronto to actually scalp uh, Toronto Blue Jays tickets. And and the high school had called my mom, which was a which was a bit of a disaster. So I'd been I'd been uh, suspended from school and public school for fighting, and suspended in high school. So I wasn't exactly a, uh, I was. Kind of, I I got into a lot of trouble. I drove my parents crazy. Let's put it that way.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, people go through all sorts of uh, ways of uh, of uh, waking up and realization. So, obviously, you you didn't go into post secondary. I'm thinking, you know, okay. And so, were you into drugs and alcohol and the whole scene, womanizing, the whole nine yards?
1: yeah I got you know at the age of age of fifteen I was playing playing hockey on a team with guys that were nineteen and twenty and and that's when you know it was kind of periodic this part of the sport and the culture drinking and that you know it's some interesting things happened to me I didn't realize I wasn't aware of this one trauma up until about twelve months ago. I mean it takes us so long to really get to the core fundamental traumas in this life on a subconscious level and recently through all the cleaning work and the way that I've been living it got back to that fundamental trauma at the age of six I was molested and that trauma stored in my subconscious and again you know I had a family environment where my parents were absolutely incredible and they actually went out to dinner one night and left me with a babysitter a female babysitter and I was there with my six-year-old best friend at the time and her boyfriend proceeded to come over and during the course of that night we were we were I mean, watching them have sex, and then his friend had come over, and there was molestation that took place while the well the boyfriend and the girl were upstairs, and I was downstairs with the friend molesting me and oh. and that that was something that was stored away in my subconscious, literally I mean my parents could remember coming home early from from dinner and catching the babysitter upstairs in the bedroom, um, you know which was a, a someone who had babysat on the street and and that in somebody that was, you know, my parents knew well, so it was, you know, it's, it's, it's just amazing to me that, you know, even for parents out there that, you know, do as much as they possibly can to, to create safe environments for their children. And my parents were the best at it. I mean, you know, I had strict rules and these types of things. It's There's still the way that the planet's functioning. It's just unfortunate that these things need to happen or they, I shouldn't say need to happen, but they do happen. Mm-hmm. So that trauma was one that stuck in my subconscious. And then at the age of 11, I had surgery. On my stomach for something called a varicocele which is basically there's a too much blood being sent into the one testicle so I had that surgery done and that surgery severed off the electricity going into my prostate to some degree because of the meridians the way they were cut and I actually grew up throughout my teenage years not producing the testosterone that a normal young man would which caused issues with regards to being interested in sex and things like that um, you know, sexually I was, I could be active, but having the interest in it was not there. And then, uh, so drinking was something and partying was started the part of the culture and just, and, and I was, I was a social guy. I, I, I mean, I loved the locker room and the culture of being around the guys more than I did playing hockey, but it definitely laid the foundation for heavy drinking. That was never seen to be something that was, you know, a problem or out of the ordinary. Then at the age of 19, I was introduced to cocaine. And that's when the game changed uh, because cocaine for me stimulated me sexually in a way that I had never experienced before. And because I had grown up in a household where my parents were, I wouldn't say overly strict, but they were really interested in what was going on with me and my sister's life. And they were always around, even though my mom worked um, shift work in the hospital, there was always a parent around after school and things like that. So uh, we didn't have, we had freedom, but not a ton of freedom to get mixed up into bad things. So um, when I got out of the nest at 16 and would found myself, um, in Ottawa, you know, that's, it was kind of like letting a lion out of the cage. So I did like to drink and party and, and have fun, but I was playing hockey in that. But at 19, when I was introduced to cocaine and then, you know, being stimulated in this way sexually throughout my twenties was, yeah, it was, I was a heavy womanizer. I mean, it's, I mean, Thank God for his forgiveness because, you know, I never, I never hurt a woman intentionally or physically, but I slept with a lot of them and, and without any really regard for, for who they were or, or that. And I did a lot and, a lot. and most of those sexual interactions were while using cocaine and drinking heavily. So, I mean, the amount of time and energy has taken me to clean a lot of the energy of those experiences. Because as we know, every substance that we consume opens a portal. I um, mean, you drink chamomile and it opens a portal. It's a very gentle one cocaine and these stimulants, I mean, you get s- mixing around and a lot of really dark energies and, and the alcohol and that. So, you know, I went down, I was, I was still a guy that was, you know, would party here and there and, and then entered into my twenties as a professional hockey player. And, you know, really struggled in my first few years because I was still had the behaviors off ice that weren't necessarily the most savory. And I really didn't figure out that I was now playing with men. Thirty eight years of age, and I'm at the age of 20, where in junior hockey, I could get by with that type of behavior. At uh, 23, I suffered a um, an injury in my knee, went in for surgery, and I've uh, got a staph infection post-surgery, which put me in the hospital for about uh, two or three weeks. And that's when things really went down a, a dark, a dark um, path for me, because I was told I was never going to play the game again. I mean, I remember sitting there in that hospital bed, and and waking up, uh, because the staff infection had been misdiagnosed, so I was walking around with it for, for 8 or 10 days. And it was one that's, for anyone who's familiar with this type of infection, resistant to penicillin. It's called MRSA. So I, I, when they finally, I was in the hospital, I, I mean, I was about 10 or 12 hours away from, from them cutting my leg off because of the, the nature of the infection. Um, and then from there I was basically on my own for, for, you know, a couple of years, there was a lot of trouble that, that came to the forefront, arrests and getting in trouble with the law and a lot of really heavy drug use and alcohol use. Um, because all I knew was to be in, all I knew was hockey, I, hockey, drinking beer, doing drugs and chasing women. And, you know, I was on the top of my game, so to say, I was making a lot of money and thought to look at looked upon by society that I had made it. And, and now it was all taken away. I knew nothing else. So it was kind of going from up here and then down here. And that's when the cocaine use and alcohol use and self-medication along with Xanax and Percocets for pain and that became really, really prevalent um, and really set the tone for the next seven, eight years of my life, um, which I would never change any aspect of it because it brought me to where I am today. But it was a dark, dark time, really dark time. I mean, attempted suicide and really, really, really difficult stuff.
0: Hmm. And during this whole process, you know, that you're going through this, obviously your parents being very caring and understanding, they're by your side and they're wondering what took place, what has happened to our son? Um, you know, can you kind of, you know, in your own way, express what you felt at that time? Like, did you feel like you disappointed them? Or did you feel like, you know, what the hell's going on with them? Like?
1: Yeah, it's well, I, I think the, the first thing to understand is that I left, you know, at 20, I, I left to play professional hockey in Chicago. And um, I wasn't spending a lot of time with my parents other than in the off season. And because, you know, like, I think a lot of addicts do they try to hide their behaviors and that from the people close to them because you don't want to hurt them and that's kind of who i was so at the from 23 to 25 i was living in chicago i wasn't coming home at all and that's when the drug use got the worst Uh, under the house of my folks my mom was like a detective so you weren't you know and and they weren't and back then cocaine and that wasn't really spoken about in the way that it is now it's a lot more prevalent in in um, in sports, it was thought people just thought that I had a drinking problem or that I like to like to drink a lot. So what I was feeling, I if I didn't have the love of my mother and father, I one hundred percent would have jumped off a bridge in front of a bus or a bus or blew my brains out for sure. One hundred percent. I I did not want to be here. I was especially from twenty three to twenty five. There, while at twenty seven, I was just in a in a dark place. Um, but I couldn't I couldn't bring myself to do that to them. Um, I thought it would devastate them. Although I felt if I OD'd that maybe that would, wouldn't wouldn't fall so hard hard on them. So you you just you, you don't really know what, what, what to do. I mean I, I didn't have any faculties. I had no no education. I had I really had nothing um you know other than the hopes to get back playing and come back from injury. Um, so you it's it's hard to really put it into context. You're you're so, trying to hide and not keep sure. Yep.
0: It's sorry for interrupting. No, it's okay. Luke, no, it's okay. Because I've got this you know um, so was it alcohol and the drug was that because of the emptiness and the void and the possibility (coughs) of you know am I good enough like your internal dialogue or was it more to do with uh, a habit because this habit was formed in your teens and you're just going to keep doing it because your body craves it like I'm not a hundred percent sure you know why one would continue so was it one or the other or was it something completely different
1: I'd say a little bit of both you don't really have any other way to deal with it I mean if I go back now to that experience I had when I was six and and what happened there I made a decision as a young child in that moment that I wasn't good enough that I couldn't ask for help and that nobody was there to help me nobody nobody was there to hear me because of the nature of the way the molestation took place, which was no fault of anybody close to me or my parents. I mean, it was just so nobody could have prevented that from happening. But as a child, because of the level of imagery and the way that I'm working in different, different practices now, I've gone back to the experience there and relived the whole thing and, and was able to see the, the decision I made. So that I'm not good enough, I need to be seen, and, and I can never ask for, for help. And I grew up to be someone who needed to be seen as an athlete couldn't ask for help self-medicated um, and didn't feel like anyone was would was when anyone would actually want to assist me. So the self-medicating aspect of it was just the archetype in which I was. Um, and again, growing up in a heavily chauvinistic masculine culture and that asking for help and showing weakness is fundamentally not something you do. Being vulnerable is not something you do. Although going out and getting stone drunk and doing drugs for two days and sleeping with five or six different women is something that is celebrated within the locker room something that you look at yourself as being a big you know man on campus which is completely ridiculous so I think the addiction for me more than anything was the stimulation and excitement the addiction of being somebody being seen Uh, and I had no self-love or compassion for myself so naturally where was I looking for it in anything that made me feel wanted and you know, you could always control the way that a beer went down your throat or the way that you could get a hold of drugs and and a woman wanting to be with you, um, was the way in which I was connecting with people. And I couldn't feel anything either. Like I didn't have the ability to connect with people. It just, it just wasn't, I was functioning in a heavily analytical way and craving that level of notoriety and recognition that I had as a, as a hockey player playing, you know, in front of 10, 15, 20,000 people. And all the while not even understanding what I'm doing, just thinking that I've got it together, thinking that, you know, I'm going to get back to, to what I love to do. Or even when I was playing before I was hurt, just, this is just regular behavior. I mean, you hear. You, s- didn't
0: know. you didn't know the difference. Oh, you don't, you
1: it's don't formal. know. The, you, you don't know the difference. I mean, you, I mean, the stories that went on, I mean, in, in back in the seventies and eighties of, Guys playing hockey at the, or even sports at the highest level. I mean, you see right now, you've got uh, Michael Jordan on Netflix, The Last Dance, and he's talking about when he came into the league in the 80s, and guys are smoking cigarettes between quarters and doing cocaine all the time and drinking. This is just the, this is what comes with this overstimulated way of the way we have this huge separation within society people making all kinds of money that are just being acknowledged for their physical abilities. Naturally, it's, it's a very archaic and chauvinistic environment and there's no shortage of women or people, bar owners, drug dealers, people that want to hang around with you that make you feel that way. So you literally feel like you're on top of the world. You feel like you've got it all figured out. Got a little bit of money in the bank, but it's just all, it's all living out here. And, and eventually it's going to come to a halting stop. Yes. Right. You know, I'm fortunate it didn't take my life. I have a lot of close friends that dealt with the same types of things and, and that, and a lot of it too, is, was, was due to traumatic brain injury from concussions, Mm. um, which is where the, where the predisposed um, addictive behavior to alcohol and drugs and that and stuff uh, came from. Um, So, and and the science now shows that, I mean, when I was diagnosed with depression, anxiety, ADHD, and bipolar spectrum at the age of, I think, 24, 25, uh, then they didn't realize that head trauma could cause these types of symptoms and that. And, and I was told basically, go get a job pumping gas because you're never going to equate to anything else in life. Um, and you think you're broken. So, I mean, yeah. w- what else do you know how to do? You get some instant relief from here and there, even though you don't like yourself, you have no relationship with yourself, but it's all that you know.
0: Yeah. So now looking at where you are today, and I'm going to keep you in that zone still, um, mm-hmm how do you think that society or community or parenting could have helped you at that time? Or could they have at all?
1: No, I don't, I don't, there's nothing that could have, I, you know, more and more times that I'm seeing and even in the people around me that our lives need to run their course. Uh, I mean, the only way that would have been any support there or, or saving me was if we had a completely different social structure we have today one that's one that's driven from love and not fear so i mean our education system medical system all of that stuff which i truly believe that I, and, I, and i and i experience it that us as human beings are doing the best we possibly can the difficulty here is is that the system is broken the system's fractured the system is heavily influenced on competition economic growth and keeping most of the population subdued so that a select few can can get ahead. And even those individuals, God, I have the most love and respect for them because I believe they're doing the best they possibly can. So we just have a structure on this planet that isn't working. We're seeing it more now than ever. There's nothing that could have been done back then to save me. Um, I mean, God knows and, and, and the people close to me that my mom and my father, I mean, they, my, my mom scratched and clawed. If it was not for that, for that beautiful lady, who I have a, such a beautiful relationship with today. There is no possible way that I would still be here. I'd either be dead or be in prison for the rest of my life. Wow. Yeah, without, wow. without question. There's nothing stronger than a mother's love. Nothing. It? That's it literally amazing. kept me alive. And, and even to this day, I, I lean on that for such support in that because, I mean, not that a father's love isn't, isn't but we understand the nurturing aspect of it. So um, that everything that could have been done was done because I wasn't listening to anybody, yes. I had all the answers. Yes. I knew the answers. so you know I'd like a lot of young people. You couldn't tell me, and I had and I had some money, so I signed yes. for a half million bucks at the age of twenty. Was my signing bonus? Yeah. So you try to tell a kid who's got some notoriety, got some money, and thinks he's got it all figured out that it's hopeless. Yeah.
0: yeah, fame and fortune and women and you name it, yeah. you had it all. Well, mm-hmm. and yet there was this emptiness. There was this part of you that was going to awaken, and I am so glad so glad that you did not take your life and that your mother was by your side and so we've come to the end of our first half our first half the segment of listening to uh, an incredible journey with with Luke Sellers uh, an uh, ex-professional ice hockey player and um, I, I have never known all of the complete journey which Luke is, uh, is sharing with us today. And he's just a beautiful, beautiful soul from the day that I met him. There's so many things about him that I could go on and on about. There's thank a part soft. of him, there's a part of you, Luke, that reminds me so much of my younger son. I yeah. owe that. So on that note, um, I just wanna thank you again and we will have Luke's balance of his journey shared with us right here at Uplifting Humans where we honor, empower, educate, and inspire the listener with real stories and expert advice. Thank you for tuning in. And I look forward to hearing the balance of this. Thank you, Luke.
1: Thank you, Sal. Thank you for having me. You're doing a beautiful thing here.